Hey there, it's Nick. I've got some bad news. Melvin Dumar, who was featured on Love & Radio in 2011, died of cancer in Pahrump, Nevada, just this past Sunday. He was 74 years old. So I wanted to replay his episode, The Man in the Road, produced by Benjamin Bombard. You're listening to Love & Radio with Nick Vanderkolk. Today's episode, The Man in the Road. It's time for Let's Make a Deal, starring TV's big leader, Auntie Hall. I like television game shows. To me, that's the only form of gambling because it's, you, know, you don't have to pay money to get in to see them. You know, the tickets are free. Now let me tell you, as we start the show, I want to let you know that we have available to be won this evening over $39,000 in cash and cards. Been on Let's Make a Deal and, and the Price uh, is Right and I, the dating game before I got married to Bonnie. Imagine Smith. Right. I'm going to give you what I have in my pocket here for your shoes. Okay. 100, 200. What's the secret? Huh? What's the secret? How do you get on a, a game show? <laughs> well, they, they, they look for uh, three things. Personality, originality, and color. But if you're quite outgoing, which I can be, if you are a little over the top, you have to really put your personality right out front. Always smile. Make it look like you're having a good time. That's that's the trick. In December of 67, on the 29th of December, I uh, left Gab's in the evening time. I think I must have left there somewhere around 11 o'clock. That was a payday, and like most of the miners, I lived from payday to payday. I was driving south toward Las Vegas, went through Goldfield, past Lindy Junction, where the... uh, Notorious Cottontail Ranch is located. I was about five or six miles south of Cottontail Ranch, and I had to stop and relieve myself. It was just going to pull off the highway, but then I seen a little dirt road that went off the highway. And uh, there in the dirt road was a man lying. thought I'd found a dead body. Am I? (laughs) I'm 66 years old. Born in Cedar City, Utah. Raised in Nevada. I live now in Brigham City, Utah. And um, 
What else did you want? Your name? Oh, my name. <laughs> my name's Melvin Dumar. Okay. My name. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> Fallon. Fallon. Where's that? It's about 70 miles east of Reno. A highway 50. It comes right through the middle of the state. Loneliest road in the nation. We had a little farm outside of town and we raised horses and cows and pigs and chickens and rabbits. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you name it, we had quite a menagerie. Bonnie, we've been married 37 years now. Yeah, she hasn't run off yet. <laughs> but, uh... They thought I'd found a dead body. It appeared to me like somebody had dumped him there. He had blood on his face and on his shirt. Real baggy pants. It looked like they were about four sizes too big for him. He had a kind of a beige colored long sleeve shirt on. No coat, no hat, nothing, you know. Being the 29th of December, it was quite cold out. I stopped the car. I was contemplating whether I should go get the sheriff or something. But then I seen him moving. So I got out and uh, helped him out and put him in the car. Wanted to take him to a hospital. He said no, he didn't want anything to do with doctors or hospitals or police or anything. He wanted to go to Vegas. I said, well, I'm going down to through Las Vegas. <laughs> For the first uh, while in the car, he, he just kind of trembled, you know, quite violently, you know, he's shaking and everything. But, uh, he was curious about who I was and what I was doing, and I told him about being in the Air Force, and I wanted to be a pilot and all that, and they wouldn't let me be a pilot because I didn't have a college degree. And, but I tried to get a job at Hughes Aircraft, and that's when he told me that he owned it. He was Howard Hughes. What do you know about Howard Hughes? A totally unusual, strange guy, but really, really, really rich. He was born, I think, relatively poor. He made his reputation in Hollywood not only as somebody who was pioneering in the movie business, but also in a lot of things with uh, aircraft. He eventually became the controlling power behind RKO Pictures, which was one of the largest movie studios. And then he made a tremendous amount of money creating something called the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Most of us know that he became this utter strange recluse surrounded by a lot of rich bodyguards. And this is a guy who wouldn't shake hands with people unless he and they wore gloves. He became totally a germaphobe. There were all these stories about him, you know, that he would actually collect his own bodily fluids. He built the Spruce Goose. This whole plane was pretty much built of balsa wood, but it was the largest plane that had yet been made. So he gathers everybody there in the harbor to see him take it off, and he gets behind the controls. We were airborne for just a moment, and we were really up in the air. We were really up in the air. <laughs> and I don't know whether how, how did you expect that? It just never took flight, so that was a really big failure. But of course, the other thing he's known 
for is discovering uh, Jane Russell. A kiss on the hand may be quite continental, but diamonds are a girl's best friend. She's a very, very buxom movie actress. He wanted to take advantage of her physical attributes, so he put her in this cowboy movie called uh, The Outlaw. And, you know, the rumor is is that he uh, brought in some aircraft engineers to design a bra for her that would show off her cleavage and yet at the same time do it in a way that would not cross the moral code for films that are, you know, were being shown in the 30s and 40s. And I thought he was a little weird, a little strange, because he looked like a bum to me. I dropped him off. I took him to the Sands Hotel. It was probably somewhere around 3 o'clock in the morning. I had no clue that he owned it at the time. I pulled in front. The old man kind of panicked, and he wanted me to take him around back. And so I took him around back. Before I dropped him off, he asked me if I had any money, so I just gave him some change, and, and uh, you know, because I thought he wanted to, you know, buy another bottle of wine or a cup of coffee or make a phone call, you know, who knows what he wanted for. And uh, so I gave him some change that I had in my pocket and just told him goodbye, and then I left. And I never heard from him again until... You know, here's something I just found on the web that I've never heard. And this is, like, so strange. I, I just love this. Apparently, he became obsessed with the 1968 film Ice Station Zebra. You are 300 feet below the surface of the North Atlantic. On board the American nuclear submarine Tigerfish 3. If you haven't seen it, it's one of the worst disaster military movies ever made. Your destination, a secret outpost at the top of the world. Ice Station Zebra. Take her up. And apparently he had this movie running on a continuous loop in his home. He must have watched it, you know, they says here 150 times. This movie is so bad. Wow, that's... Boy, this must have sent him into a whole other level of craziness. Now, I have to be upfront about this. There are a lot of stories about Howard Hughes, and as much as he was a public person, there's a huge enigma quality to him. So I, I do have to say it's really hard to tell which Howard Hughes stories are true and which are not. Just go check it out, and you'll find out that I'm not lying to you. From my perspective, this is what happened. And then I never heard from him again until 1976. I had a little gas station, a little mini market in Willard, Utah. A guy came in to the station. I didn't know who he was or where he came from. I was uh, had some school books open and he just kind of almost snuck up on me. He started talking to me, asking me about Hughes and, and, and who I was and if I'd ever met him, you know, I thought that was strange because it was only a couple of weeks after he died. I told him about, you know, well, I picked up some bum a few years before that that said he was Hughes, but I didn't, you know, know if it was him or, or not. The lady came in to the station and so I excused myself to go wait on the, the lady after I got finished with her, he was gone. 
I didn't even see him leave. After everybody was gone, I went back and was going to, you know, do the schoolwork I was working on, and uh, there was that envelope laying right on my books. I picked it up and I thought, what the heck is this? I knew this guy was the only one that was in there, so he had to have left it, but uh, he didn't tell me why or anything. It was addressed to David O. McKay, who was the president of the church, but at that particular time, I, I don't think he was the president anymore. I think he'd passed away and there was somebody else. Even though I was uh, raised Mormon, I wasn't that active, and so I wasn't even sure who the president of the church was at that time. My curiosity is uh, I wanted to see what it was all about and you know, and why it ended up with me. And so I went and uh, opened the envelope, steamed it open, and read it, and it, and it scared me to death. I, Howard R. Hughes, being of sound, mind, and dis... Oh, jeez. This is so kind of messed up Disposing... There. Disposing... Mind. Mind. And in memory. In memory. Not acting under duress, fraud, or undue influence from any person whomsoever, and being a resident of Las Vegas, Nevada, declare this to be my last will... It was a three-page will of Howard Hughes uh, written on uh, yellow legal paper. After my death, my estate is to be divided as follows. First, one-fourth of all my assets to go to the Hughes Medical Institute of Miami. Second, one-eighth of my... I didn't know what to do with it. Third, one-sixteenth to go to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, David O. McKay. I put it back in the envelope and... um, (laughs) I took it out several times and reread it. I couldn't believe what I was reading. Eight one sixteenth to go to Melvin Demar of Gabs, Nevada. And your name is spelled. It's misspelled. spelled. It's spelled wrong. They estimate it to be somewhere in excess of a hundred and fifty million dollars. Wow. And, uh, so <laughs> Did it feel kind of like winning the lottery? Mm. I don't know. I I, I think I, I was more concerned that if it were true, I was concerned about my family, uh, about what would happen. You just hear all these horror stories about you know people trying to kidnap your children and and all that, and and you know and people if they think you got money, they're trying to you know rip you off in every way they can, and it it, it genuinely scared the devil out of me. I thought somebody was pulling a joke on me. You know, I, I didn't. I didn't think it was real. But then I, I read it several times, and I thought, well, who would even know that I picked up Hughes? Most of the people I told were related to me, and this guy that brought that, I had no clue who he was or where he was from. I actually thought about throwing it away, and then I thought, if this is real, it would be very unfair to everybody else that's named in there. Uh, to throw it away. So that's why I decided to take it to the church. Resealed the envelope, took it to Salt Lake, looking for the president of the church. Some little guy in there cornered me and started telling me all about the, you know, the founding of the church and everything. And I, I just was 
wanting to find out where I could find the president, and, and this little guy, he wouldn't hardly let me go, but he said, they see that big, tall building right there? He says, that's the world headquarters for the Mormon Church, and I didn't even know it. I went there and uh, asked to see the president of the church, and they told me no. I had the, the will with me, and it was like being handed a hot potato. I didn't want to hold it. I, I didn't want to be responsible for it or anything. I just laid it on the desk and walked out and uh, went back and went to school that night. A couple of days later, I heard on the, the radio that a mysterious woman had delivered a, a will purportedly Howard Hughes's to the Mormon Church office building. I just thought, well, you know, if they think a woman delivered it, I'm just going to go with it because I, I, I thought somebody at that particular time that somebody was trying to pull a joke on me. I, I, I didn't know if it was real or if it was fake or, or what the heck was going on, and I didn't know who the guy was that brought it to me. And uh, there was just a lot of unanswered questions, so I felt that it would be easier for me if if I just went along with the, the notion that a mysterious woman had delivered it. So, And it was mainly because I was scared to death, and I, I didn't want to be responsible. I didn't want to be accused of writing it, which I knew I would. The vast wealth of Howard Hughes, whose bizarre life has spawned in a state battle almost as unusual, finally moves toward distribution Monday with a scheduled trial in Las Vegas on the authenticity of the so-called Mormon will. The Mormon will Who are your main opponents in the trial? Who was trying to keep you out of the will? Hughes' relatives. What evidence did you have at the time that validated your interest in the will? I think one of the best uh, things we had going for us was the FBI, uh, the crime labs and stuff that compared the ink. They knew exactly what type of ink that the will was written with, and it was the ink that was taken off the market four years before Hughes died, and it was the exact same ink that they matched up that will was written with, as was written with other memos and things that Hughes had written. When we got into court, it just depended on who was paying the handwriting experts as to what they'd say. The judge told each side that they could only have five handwriting experts, you know, testify. And so when we got into court, those five handwriting experts, or supposed handwriting experts, said that it was authentic, and those five of them that said it wasn't. So it just depended on who was paying the bill, I guess. So they gave me polygraph tests, but they gave me several of them, and, and they would ask me the identical questions. And one polygraph expert would say that I was lying. Another one would say I was telling the truth. So, you know, who, who do you believe? You know, it's, it's, it's a tough situation. What was some of the other evidence against your case? I don't know. <laughs> other than the, other than the, 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 the uh, his aide saying that he never left, that 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 they used against us. I had a Western band, and I was playing at a church singles dance down here in Riverdale, Utah, the night they came back with the verdict. I think it was one of the guys from KSL, Channel 5, that told me that the verdict was in and that, and that they'd found uh, against uh, the will. 
and said that they they felt that someone other than Hughes had written it. And the jury said that why they went against us is because there wasn't any evidence at that time to show th that he was out. I I was I was kind of expecting it, but I was I was really hurt and devastated. And I, I know I just left the dance. I, I left and, and went home. What'd you do? <laughs> no, I don't know. Just kind of beat up on the wall a little bit. And <laughs> yeah, I was I was upset, but I don't I don't know. I just I just tried to get away. Yeah. It You know, everybody was, you know, making fun of me and everything, you know, before and, and accusing me of writing it. And, 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 you know, when they said that they felt it was a fake, then, then I knew that it would be all the worse, and, um, which it was. You had knives and, and guns pulled on you. Can you tell me about that? Oh, it's just uh, like, like one guy there in Ogden pulled a switchblade and said he was going to cut my heart out. Of, I didn't give him fifty thousand dollars, and I, you know, I didn't have fifty thousand dollars, and I would never give it to anybody like that anyway. So I just, in no uncertain terms, told him to start cutting because, you know, I, I uh, you know, I just wasn't going to go for it. <laughs> and I also told him that I would do uh, physically harm to his body if he even tried. <laughs> so. You know, I just told him I was going to kick his ass up between his shoulder blades. <laughs> Not long after that, the, the band that we had, they kind of wanted me to get out of the band. The, these guys didn't want to even be associated with me. And as a direct result of it, I lost the job that I was working. And um, yeah, it hasn't really been easy because uh, through the years I've been denied you know, business opportunities and been denied credit and job opportunities and, and everything else. The problem was right from the very beginning when I when I first read that will, I thought, you know, I'll never see anything of this, even if it's real. I said, you know, they'll, they'll either drag it through court for years or they'll accuse me of writing it. Uh, I didn't know about it, you know, threatening to throw me in prison and everything, too, which the judge in Nevada did in the original trial. I just I just thought, you know, right from the very beginning, I said, I'll, you know, there's too much money involved and I'll never see a dime of this, which I'm absolutely correct. I would have been better off if I'd have never picked Hughes up at all. I mean, financially, anyway. But it, there has been, you know, a few things that's come of it that I probably never would have experienced had it not have been for this experience. Like I've I've had opportunities to travel around the country and be like on Good Morning America and the David Letterman show. If somebody told you a story similar to this, how would you respond? Well, knowing what I've been through, I, I may be skeptical, but I, I wouldn't come out and tell them they're a liar. I think I would try to 
check the facts and everything, you know, before I made up my mind. So, and where does this story stand now, Melvin? I guess it's just gone dead. Uh, the um, attorney t has tried to reopen it, but uh, the court system, um, the court of appeals and stuff, they just treated it like it was a big joke and they just laughed about it and they said it's too late, you know. I wanted to be a pilot, but I also love to entertain, and I and I love to sing, and I write songs. I even wrote a song about about Howard Hughes, you know, that I did in shows in Reno and stuff that uh, called "Thank You, Howard." But um, could you play it for me? Uh -uh. No. Oh, come on, <laughs> Melvin. Really? Oh. <laughs> I might sing part of it for you, but <laughs> could you? Could you sing some? Thank you, Howard, for leaving me something. But all I got was frustration, and I'll never live it down. Oh, how I wished you were still around. No, I don't care what the papers say. I didn't do anything wrong. I'll never see the millions you left me, but I know you sang my song. So thank you, Howard, for leaving me something. But all I got was frustration, and I'll never be the same. But I thank you just the same. <laughs> In 2005, a retired FBI agent named Gary Magnuson interviewed several of Hughes' employees who confirmed that he'd been picked up by Dumar in 1967. Based on that and other evidence revealed by Magnuson, Dumar filed an appeal the next year. It was dismissed. You've been listening to Levin Radio. The show was produced by Ben Bombard, Nick Vanderkolk, and Raymond Tungakar, and edited by Nick Vanderkolk and Raymond Tungakar, with additional help from Melba Lara, John Barth, and Robin Amer. Please visit our website. It's loveandradio.org. <laughs>